The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Yeah, so uh, they're having a blessed time over there. Uh, Patrick um, is, is going to bless us this morning with a great word. Um, he's the uh, lead pastor at Valley Life Church in Lebanon, Oregon. He's also the area lead for Acts 29 U.S. West. Um, and we've gotten to know him in a lot of the different events. And Patrick, we are blessed to have you here. And thank you for being yeah, here. Thanks, Harold. My, my pleasure. I appreciate uh, the, the invite. I can't adequately express how excited I am to be here this morning. It truly is uh, my joy. Um, I, I want to thank Jeff for the invitation. I'm kind of just, I mean, I appreciate the work he's doing in Uganda and stuff, but I, I really am disappointed he's not here this morning because I would love for him to hear me tell you how crazy your pastor is. Like, seriously. Uh, and, and I've learned from firsthand experience, and uh, he, he's crazy. When, when Heritage came into Acts 29... The number of churches in the state of Oregon for our network grew by one. But the energy level uh, went up an unquantifiable amount. And let me just say, heritage will either work to keep us young, or it will send us to an early grave. And only time, only time will tell. Uh, Kidding aside, um, I love you guys. I'm grateful for your work down in this corner of our state. Um, Well done. Keep it up. Uh, Get this opportunity to come and to see an expression of God's church in another part of um, our state, and particularly as a part of our network, another expression of one of our network churches. And it reminds me of the book of Acts. And I look around and and I look at the book of Acts and I see the movement of church planting across the known world. And the greetings that were sent to one another. Think of the letters of Paul where Paul would say, greet so-and-so and and the church that meets in their home. Um, What an exciting thing to be a part of. Not just what God is doing in our own local areas, but to be able to get a glimpse of what God is doing all over the place. And to to feel and to experience the partnership in the gospel. Uh, And you guys are a part of that. You're an expression of that. So thank you, thank you for the work you're doing. Your faithfulness is making a difference, not just for Medford, but for the state of Oregon and for the advancement of the gospel in our country and around the world. You're a part of that. And, and I'm just so grateful for you. I'm grateful that you are here. And so for me, it's just a tremendous joy to be here. I'm glad to be here. I don't get the opportunity very often to get out and actually see some of, some of our churches in action. And so it is my privilege. My wife is here with me this morning, which is another exciting reason. We are not often able to get out of town together. So uh, she's here. I'm not going to point her out because she hates to be stared at. But she's here, and I'm glad she's with me on this quick overnight. It was good. Uh, in June, we celebrate 23 years. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, we have five kids who are, I think I got a picture there, they are staying home overnight for the first time and getting themselves to church this morning, and things seem to be going good until we got a text last night of one of my wife's special little jars in more than one piece, and so we got that to go home to, so that'll be fun, but those are, those are my kiddos and uh, a, a joy. Uh, We planted uh, Valley Life Church 12 years ago, uh, next month. 
I've been at it in Lebanon for that time, been, was born there, so I'm an Oregonian. I've been here a long time and uh, grateful uh, to be a part of Acts 29 most of that time. And, and as Aaron said, I serve as the area lead for the state of Oregon, so I figured I'd take this opportunity to just uh, share with you some of the exciting things that God is doing in our network. I'm telling you, I've been in the network almost a dozen years, and what God is doing particularly right now is, is exciting, uh, what a time to be a part of our network. What a, what a time to be a part of the church in our country, in our world, in this time. Uh, it, it's, it's exciting. I uh, just had an area lead meeting down in Vegas for a couple of days with area leads from all over U.S. West, which is our particular network. Thirteen states from Idaho to New Mexico to Hawaii to Alaska and all states in between, and all the area leads got together to pray for our churches, to pray for the gospel's advancement in our areas. It's super exciting to see what he is doing. Uh, U.S. West consists of 110 churches and, and growing. Expect to be close to that 120, 130 mark by the end of this year. Okay? And Acts 29 U.S. West represents about 20% of Acts 29 churches globally. So our network here on the West Coast is large. And uh, so what a, what a movement. Our church is popping up all over the place. And, and we're partnered formally with, with Europe and, and the Acts 29 churches over there. So I had the opportunity to go to Manchester and London last year to see what God was doing over there and to continue to see that partnership as our large network has been paired up with another a large part of the world. And so it's, it's exciting. Uh, in Oregon, we have eight churches, eight partner churches, most of them here on the west side. Uh, of the Cascades, and, and then we've got a couple of churches in the works. Uh, Valley Life, we just sent out uh, someone to plant a church in La Grande in June, so not even there a year yet. And then uh, one of our churches in Bend as well has a resident that they will be sending either later this fall or early next year to plant in Redmond, Oregon. And so again, this is what we do. We're churches that plant churches to see the advancement of the gospel for the glory of God. And so excited. Acts 29, our network, U.S. West, funded last year 17 new churches. 17. And look to do that again this year. And, and, and this is what you need to hear. You are a part of that. Heritage financially gives and helps support this work and the work that we're doing together. And that's what we together did last year. 17 churches look to do that again this year and, and the year following. And so we, that's what we do. We plant churches. And, and you're a part of that movement. Again, you want to talk about the book of Acts. Uh, it's exciting to be a part of what God is doing. Um, how many of you were at man camp last year? Anybody here man camp last year? Okay, uh, that's coming up end of April, April 27th through the 29th. And this is our network churches in Oregon getting together, getting our men together uh, so that you can experience the network. You don't just hear reports every once in a while, you can experience it. And so I know it's a drive, it's a haul for you to get uh, to Antelope and get out to Washington Family Ranch, but it is worth it. Come see what the Lord is doing. We had, I think, uh, 10 or 11 churches involved with man camp last year, um, churches that weren't even a part of Acts 29 coming in to see the network and to see what it's doing and to hear about it. This year we have 17 
churches involved. We expect to, uh, to max the place out, so you'll want to register soon, men, but we would love to have you out for that. Ray Ortland Jr. will be our speaker. Uh, just a man, uh, just a wonderful man of God to hear from. So uh, looking forward to that. But God is doing amazing things. And, and I, I don't know how to express, uh, express this. And maybe you can relate with this sentiment. It is a scary time to be alive. There are moments where I look at what's happening in the news and I'm just, uh, um, no words, maybe fear. But God's church has thrived best under those circumstances historically. It has always thrived in opposition. And so scary, sure. But what a seat we get to have to see the glory of God and the expansion of the gospel and the establishment of the church in our time. For those that would come after, God, would you, by your great grace, use us to preserve the gospel in our time, that we run our leg hard and well so that we have something to hand off when we're done, right? Persevere, endure, talk about Jesus a lot, and we'll just keep running at it. Good deal? You in? Okay, all right, let's pray and let's get to work. God, thank you for your great grace uh, demonstrated to us in so many ways, particularly through our network and the relationship and the partnership that we have in the gospel. Man, what, what, what a privilege and an honor. We thank you. Um, we thank you for what you have done. For outside of your work, there'd be nothing to talk about this morning. Outside of what you've done, there'd be nothing to look at, nothing to look forward to, nothing to be excited about. But God, you have done great things. You have done marvelously. And and an hour together is not near enough to exhaust your excellencies. And so would we rejoice in a gospel worth talking about this morning. That we would rejoice and you would be glorified and we would be encouraged. It is in Jesus' great name that we pray. Those in agreement said, Amen. Amen. There is a scene in Scripture that I find a little haunting. I'm not sure if haunting is the right word, but when I think about this scene, it, it, it paints a, a very vivid picture. It's, it's heavy, and it, and it sticks, sticks with you. It seems like a haunting to me. <laughs> I looked up the word, and haunting means poignant and evocative, difficult to ignore or forget. That describes the scene I'm referencing. It's a haunting passage of Scripture. We'll look at the scene together, and I'll let you uh, decide. The scene takes place 
at the end of Jesus' farewell discourse, as theologians have called it. And the farewell discourse takes place between John 13, where Jesus begins by washing the feet of the disciples, and it, and it, and it concludes, really, at Gethsemane, where Jesus agonizes in prayer, and then you know G- Judas comes and betrays him. He's arrested, and then the trial and crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So um, what Jesus does in between 13 and 17 in the book of John is he pulls back from the crowd from his ministry. It's the final week of his life. And he pulls back from the crowd with just his disciples to spend some focused time with just them because he's about ready to leave. And these guys are freaking out. I mean, everything that they had expected from the Messiah, everything that they were anticipating was not really happening It wasn't looking anything like what they thought it would look like. And so they're starting to freak out. I mean, three times Jesus talks about being handed over and put to death. And and they're like, what? That doesn't look anything like what we were expecting from the Messiah, right? At one point, Peter actually rebukes him and says, you you know, pulls Jesus aside. I mean, a little presumptuous, okay? Pulls Jesus aside and, and rebukes him for the things he's saying. What does Jesus say? Get behind me what? Get behind me, Satan. For you, you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. So this whole thing is freaking him out, going against everything that they had been taught, everything that they have grown to expect. And so Jesus pulls back from the crowd, gathers with just them for a season. And I'm thinking, well, what are you doing in this farewell discourse? Are you trying to just encourage them? I think there's some, if you read it and spend some time in those chapters, you see there's some encouragement in there. There's some hope in there, but there's, there's more heavy in there too. Like there's more, this is what's coming. So it's a heavy, heavy discourse And it's going to continue as they celebrate the the Passover together in the upper room. It's going to continue on the road as they leave that room and begin to journey to Gethsemane. And then you know that story and Jesus agonizes in prayer and then his betrayal. It's a heavy section of scripture, especially when you know its context and you read those chapters in light of it. It's heavy. You can feel it. Jesus said something to Peter at the front of the discourse that I find a little bit distracting. I try to imagine the bomb that Jesus drops on Peter and then try to imagine what it was like for Peter to hear this discourse. (laughs) This is what Jesus said to Peter at the top. I'll put this on the screen, John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What are you supposed to do with that? Oh, thanks for telling me. How do you respond to that? Because in Peter's heart, did he, did he, did he resonate with that? Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to deny him. Through, oh, I can see that. Peter's like, no. I mean, I think Peter really believed that. He said, I'd lay my life down for you. And then you're going to tell me that? And then I try to imagine what it was like for Peter to hear the discourse over the course of the next few chapters of the book of John. Like Jesus is saying stuff, important stuff, and how often did his mind wander back to that? What does that mean? 
I'm going to deny him three times? No way. Does he really think that of me? This turning in his head. A little bit of a distraction. Now here's the scene. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 22. John records the scene as well, but Luke's account is particularly haunting, so I want to be there. Luke 22. And we'll start in verse 54 with a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. This is after Judas betrays and after Jesus is arrested. Verse 54, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Man, I feel that. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What do you think, haunting? Maybe it's because I tend to be a a guilt-motivated individual, a shame-motivated individual. Some of you will relate with that. You know what that's like to be motivated by guilt and shame. When I'm not doing well spiritually, shame runs me into the ground. Um, Not everybody is that way or sensitive in that regard. I am. And so maybe that's why I feel it the way that I do. Because I read chapter 22, verse 54. When I get to verse 61, it's like I forget that this account is about Peter. Who do do you think I see the Lord turning and looking at? Like Peter, who? Oh, I got it. And immediately the Lord turned and looked right at Patrick. I try to imagine that gaze. I don't, I mean, we're not given a lot of details, but I try to imagine that gaze. What was that gaze like? You know, was it like, told you. Told you so. Was it like, come on, Peter, was it a gaze of disappointment? Like, I can't believe you just did it. Was it a gaze of, I love you, Peter, I get it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I love you. Are you with me? I feel this. I feel this, and it is, it's heavy to me. 
I try to imagine what Peter's feeling. It's not like he's sitting there. We see an interval between the second and the third denial. We see an interval of about an hour. So this, this happened over, over some time. And as Peter's sitting there going, man, I've already denied twice. I wonder when I, I'm going to deny the third time and then the rooster's going to crow. No. He has no memory at this point. That's what the text indicates. He's just fearful, just freaking out. Like, imagine the things he's carrying. Like, Jesus has just been arrested. One of, their, one of their friends, Judas, is the one who betrayed him. They just hauled Jesus off. You thought he was going to Messiah, set up camp, be king, and all that kind of good stuff. That's not happening. That's big. Jesus talking three times about being handed over to, to lawless men and being killed. You, you try to imagine these things. He can't carry anymore. And Jesus just said before the rooster crows, I'm going to deny you. You're going to deny me three times. And there's another thing. And he's got all of that around a fire, and someone says, I think I know who you are. And it's like, I can't take it. No, I don't know. I can't take it anymore. And I don't know what you're talking about. And then the rooster crows. And in a moment, he remembers. And connects the dot between, dots between that moment and the disbelief when Jesus told him the first time. Like, I couldn't, can't even imagine a scenario where that would happen. I would go to the grave for you. And in a moment, confronted with his weakness and the reality. Rooster. I wonder if he listened to a rooster the same again for the rest of his life. Got a lot of roosters in my neighborhood. That would be, that'd be tough. It'd be tough. Several times a day. Reminded. says he went out what bitterly it's like I, I try to imagine in a moment like a tsunami like one minute there's water on the beach next minute it's not on the beach and the next minute it's all on the beach and in a moment that flood knocks him to the ground and he goes out and weeps bitterly here's the thing. what does that mean like weeping is already crying with a multiplier right weeping is already crying kicked up a notch but that's not, that, doesn't, that doesn't work for Luke. He's like, oh, that doesn't quite capture that moment. Um, he wept bitterly. Bitterly? That means to an extreme. Forceful. Particularly harsh. You imagine a gauge up on a dash or maybe on a piece of equipment. You imagine a gauge and, and, and that needle is in the red clipping hard. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. And, you know, what's he weeping bitterly about? Is it like, Jesus, you know, you're so harsh, you're so judgmental, like staring right at me. Like you're rude. I mean, what did you do that for? That wasn't kind, nice, or compassionate. You're just judging me all the time. Is that why he's weeping bitterly? I don't think so. Where is that bitter weeping aimed at? He knows the problem's him, doesn't he? In a moment, the veil is sort of pulled back on his own heart. He would have wanted to not be that guy. 
Like if it were up to him and Jesus is telling him, it's like, man, I don't want to be that guy. And in a moment he goes, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. He's confronted with his own sin, confronted with his own limitation, confronted with his own brokenness and can barely stand up under it. I think he really loved Jesus. I think he really loved Jesus and found himself disappointing. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wept bitterly? After sort of sitting on that and camping on it, I go, man, I don't think I've wept bitterly near as many times as maybe I would have guessed, but I have a few times, like bitterly, forceful, particularly harsh. I want you to see something. I want you to see what's going on here. We're given only a glimpse, but it touches on some stuff that's not little. If you're already in Luke 22, just look back at verse 31. This is Luke's account of Jesus telling Peter he's going to deny. So we already looked at John's account of it. Let's look at what Luke adds to that. And I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. What? I don't like that. And as an aside, let me just say this. Some of the things that our Lord and Savior is privy to, that we are not. So hopefully there's just a moment where you can kind of see some of the load that Jesus carries. Seriously, like I'm not, a, I'm not aware of this Satan demanded to have me thing, but Jesus is. Like that's, I, I don't know, from a leadership, we think about Jesus as high priest, we think about Jesus as king, we think about Jesus as Messiah engaging with our enemy who would look to destroy us. Jesus is doing stuff we're not aware of that's not little. Engaged on our behalf in ways that are easy to overlook. That's an aside. Satan demanded to have you. I don't like that. That he might what? That he might sift you like wheat. That he might sift you. What does that mean? Well, to sift, you, you, you know, it's, it's you take some sort of dry substance that isn't pure, that has some lumps in it or some debris in it or some impurities in it, and you run it through a sieve or a shaker box, a screen, and allow the, the pure dry substance to pass through it, leaving the debris behind. And you do that by agitation. So I want you to picture that little shaker box. It's a, you know, it's got a little wood frame, handles on each side. You got a screen on the bottom. You're dumping a bunch of stuff in. You're picking it up and you're shaking it. You're agitating it to remove impurities. Okay, to separate the good from the bad. That's what it means, literally. Now, figuratively, used of a person, it means testing. That Satan, then, has demanded to have you that he might test you. Now, this is a little bit confusing because in Scripture, we see that God also tests us, don't we? 
And that testing, that suffering produces in us a perseverance, a long suffering. It produces in us character. It produces in us greater hope. So when we, when we see that God allows or agitates us or leads us in or allows suffering in our life, it's for our good. To build character, to build hope, to, to, to build perseverance and endurance and long suffering. Okay? Is that Satan's motivation in testing? I mean, it's a safe bet that he's not doing it for your good. It's a safe bet. That he, he agitates for an altogether different reason than God might. God would test for our good. Satan doesn't want to test for your good. He's not interested in your good. To the contrary, in fact. He, he tests us. I want you to picture this. Satan with the shaker box. He's separating the good and the bad so he can do what? Accuse us of everything in that box. Shake out all the purities, shake all the good out, so that the only thing left in the box is our debris, the lumps, the imperfections. His motivation is to, yeah, sure, sift us, test us, agitate us, so that what remains in the box, he can raise up and he can show God and say, see, that's what you picked. And it seems weird to see Satan demanding anything of God, doesn't it? But the reason he is so confident and so maybe cocky is because he knows there's something in the box. He's confident that when that agitation process begins, that sifting begins, he's going to find stuff. You're sitting there going, like, I want you to think about it. Is he going to find stuff? Are you going to sift you? Is he going to find stuff? No, Pastor. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. He's going to find stuff. He knows it. You know it. So he can demand. Because God is holy. Scripture says he has to punish sin. He has to. So Satan can make that demand because he knows he's going to find something in the box. Pretty heavy. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You're going to be found wanting, Peter. But I love this. But I have what? Verse 32. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. <sighs> Jesus is saying that. Jesus is saying that. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm glad that's in here. I... How cool would it be to know that Jesus prays for us? Hebrews chapter 7, I'll put this on the screen, you don't have to turn there. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Okay, I want, you to, I want you to get this. So he's looking back at the limitations of the Old Testament system saying this. So like, look at this. These guys, they couldn't keep doing their office because, well, they died. They don't live forever. So they would die, and then a new guy would have to be appointed. And that just continued on for many, 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 many years. And he's saying that is a fundamental limitation. 
Now, I want you to think about this. Let's imagine, you, you know, your, your insurance agent, your, your, um, you know, somebody you talk to at the bank regarding your mortgage, these people that you build relationships with over your accounts, your financial advisor, whoever it may be, and, and all of a sudden you find out that your account has been handed over to somebody else. How does that feel? Yeah. It's like, this person doesn't know me. Like, I've been, right? So I want you to think about this. Like, that there is a limitation. They have to keep offering sacrifices, and then they always have to find a new high priest. It just feels broken. It just feels broken. But he says, look, it's totally different with Jesus. Guys, I want you to see this. Jesus has been serving as high priest since he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Your account has not been handed to someone else to manage. He knows you. He knows your story. He has all your information and he knows your name. That's better, isn't it? So Hebrews right, the author of Hebrews says, consequently then, he is able to save to the other, uttermost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does that mean? He's always praying for the saints as our priest. Look, I got no text that says, uh, I, look, I, I can't flip to a text that says Satan demanded to have me, and my name's not in there. There's no narrative of my life literally in there that says Satan demanded it. But it's a, safe, it's a safe bet that Satan has made these types of demands before. Think that's fair? Yeah, that's fair. That he has maybe demanded to have you too. That he might sift you, agitate you to see what's left. So we can accuse you, hold this up to a holy God and say, man, you can't, you can't accept this one. Because look, you would be violating scripture by pardoning the wicked. That's what scripture says in Proverbs. It's an abomination to pardon the wicked. So God can't pardon us and remain holy. That's a real problem, guys. You need to see that. That is a real problem. God cannot remain holy and forgive sins. You're like... We'll get to that. He has to punish sin. So Satan can be cocky and confident because he knows he's got something on you. He he knew he had something on Peter. He knows he's got something on you. I'll tell you, I'll confirm he's got something on me. (sighs) But I have prayed for you, he said. Look what it says in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So there's, there's, this is bittersweet because there's a bummer in here. The bummer is this. When you have turned again, that assumes you're going you're gonna to fail. It's like Jesus knew when he predicted that Peter would deny, he knew he wasn't going to make it. He knew he was going to fail. But in that, there's good news too. Because he doesn't say, and if you turn again, what does he say? Come on. When you turn again. So in that is failure and victory. It's tragic and glorious. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But we know it's going to get worse first. 
Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to both, both to prison and to death. And like John's account, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Tragic. We know the rest of the story. Peter at that time didn't. This was a dark night of the soul, if you will, for Peter. This was rough. Um, the hours that went by, the days that went by in this journey, part of the journey for him, uh, hard. And some of us, some of you may be able to relate with that and understand those places and they're hard. They really, really, really are hard. And there's a lot of bitter weeping and a lot of doubt and a lot of second guessing and a lot of wondering and a lot of, I'm not sure if it's gonna work for me. I'm not sure I can, okay. It's hard. You been there? Some of you, maybe. Maybe not everybody. I, I, I pray that you... It's likely coming if you haven't. We know the rest of the story. Uh, he does, in fact, turn again. And he does, in fact, strengthen the brothers. In Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church as a fulfillment of prophecy from the book of Joel. And, and the Spirit is poured out no longer with us, but in us, as Jesus said during the farewell discourse. And, and Peter gets up and he preaches in front of a lot of people. How many people get saved that day one? How many? You have 3,000. So I don't know how many was in the crowd all told, but he gets up to preach, and I can't cover the whole sermon this morning, but it's punchy. I just pulled out a few pieces. I'll put these on the screen. Look at this, Acts chapter two. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Look at this, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible. Why, you know, we talk about how could Jesus, how could Jesus raise him, the resurrection? Look at, look at. Okay, this is the son of the almighty God. It is not possible for death to hold him. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Oops. Like for him to say that, he's saying, look, Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and you killed him. It's punchy. It's punchy. They freak out. What do we do? He says this, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's strengthening his brothers, isn't he? He turned again. And he stands up in front of a massive crowd, and he preaches a very punchy gospel. They hear it. 3,000 are saved day one. Day one. 
Then later in Acts 4, Peter and John, if you know the story, they're preaching in the name of Jesus. The sick are getting healed. And the lame man is walking and all this stuff. And people are freaking out. And they pull him in to say, stop it. So they pull him in. Look, I want you to understand. This is the same council that put Jesus to death. Same council. It isn't a servant girl this time. Same council that put Jesus to death. They drug them in and said, you need to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And this is their reply. A little different than last time. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Interesting. Looks a little different this time. When you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. When you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. How did Peter get from Luke 22, verse 61 and 62? The Lord looking right at him, rooster crowing, Lord looking right at him, and then going out weeping bitterly. How did he get from there to Acts 2 and Acts 4? In a word, the resurrection, it's kind of big. Loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by them. And the resurrection of Jesus afforded Peter a conversation that would be an extension of a kind of grace that would leave him different than he was before. Turn to John 21. This is one of my favorite encounters with Jesus recorded in Scripture. Look at verse 15. This is after the resurrection. This is after he's initially showed himself and revealed himself to the disciples, but he's still not hanging out with them, so he's there, and then he's not there, and and all this stuff is sort of mysterious. And, And then we have this conversation that he has with Peter on a beach after breakfast. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Very similar to strengthen the brothers when you have turned again. Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? I want you to think about that. Peter is not recognizing the extension of grace that God is extending to him at this point. He's feeling the guilt and the shame compounding in his heart as he, Jesus asked three times. It's almost as if, I imagine it like this. It's almost as if Peter is going, he's hearing Jesus say, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, this is my, I don't know. I didn't even know if he'd ever come back to me because I totally blew it, man. I blew it like big time. And then Jesus is right here on the beach. We just had breakfast. Maybe Peter at first was kind of, you know, kind of like, and, 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 and Jesus closes that gap. Hey, Peter, do you love me? He's like, yeah, you know, I love you. Okay. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah, Lord. You know that I love you. Tend my sheep. 
Peter, do you love me? It's almost like I can feel the, the grief that he might be feeling. It's like, I knew it. He doesn't believe me. I knew I blew. I knew I wrecked it. I wrecked it all. Like back then, he doesn't believe me. He saw the rooster crowed. He looked right at me. He saw my failure. He knew it. He doesn't believe me. He's going to ask me three times. He doesn't believe me. And he's not recognizing the extension of grace. Is it a coincidence that Jesus asks him three times? I imagine what things would have been like for Peter without this part of the story. Continues and and tells him by the way he's going to die to glorify God. It's pretty heavy. I mean, it's a heavy scene. I try to imagine without this story, I try to imagine what it was like for Peter. Like, would he have preached that sermon in Acts 2? I'm not sure he wouldn't have opted out. Like, hey, any of you guys, I don't think I'm the guy that should be getting up on the platform. Anybody else want to get up and... Like, I'm not even sure I should be in the room, let alone the one doing the preaching. So, anybody, right? Just lacking confidence. Why? Well, because I screwed up. And he looked right at me. He knows it. What do you preach so boldly in the face of threats in Acts 4? I don't know. Obviously, we don't know, but I think maybe not. I try to imagine what that would be like for me. And I know, you know, when shame and guilt run me into the ground, it's like, man, I, I don't know if I should even be in the room, let alone the one on the platform. Can you relate? You ever wrestled with that kind of doubting and wondering? I'm not sure I should even be in the room. Like, I, I, I'm sitting in the back, you know, I, I'm not really sure I should be here. Peter was shown radical, undeniable grace, and it left him different. For those of you taking notes, there's the title. Radical, undeniable grace. And it fueled him. It motivated him. It wasn't, what motivated him wasn't that, oh, I'm gonna do better next time. Next time, you know, servant girl asks me if I know him, I'm going to say, I do. And he's trying to coach himself in that, right? It's like, next time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it right. What's motivating him in his boldness before the same council that put Jesus to death, what is motivating him is not, I've got to try harder this time. What's motivating him is, I cannot believe Jesus loves me. I cannot believe he wants me to feed his sheep. Like, how dumb is that? It's not dumb because Jesus isn't dumb. But from his perspective, he's like, man, that just seems ridiculous. So I'm going to give it everything I got. I'm going to leave it all out. Because I, he loves me. Broken, wrecked, damaged, a box full of debris. Just look. And he said, do you love me? And I said, yes. And I said, yes, three times. And he said, you go feed my sheep. You strengthen the brothers. Okay. It changed him. It wasn't do better and he failed and did such a bad job. This time he's going to try to do it. No, 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 no. In my pursuit of holiness, in my desire to follow God, what motivates me best is not do better this time, Patrick. For crying out loud, do better. 
that causes me to go, I'll try. But to see a God whose grace is so sufficient that he accepts me with all the debris, I'll give it all I got. That motivates me. Try harder doesn't motivate me. It just bums me out. Right? It's not that I don't want to try harder, but then in the midst of that trying harder, what am I going to find a lot more of? Debris. Peter was shown radical, undeniable grace, and I am so grateful for his story in Scripture because I feel like it's one of the stories I can go, totally, that's me. Totally. Like I imagine Peter just looked really polished and clean and giving these really awesome sermons, people getting saved, altar calls, and people like, like I'd be like, Ugh. but no, that's not what we see. We see a busted up, broken up guy who's fearless and fearful at all the wrong times. It's like, you're not supposed to be fearless there. Not there, Peter. Oh. You're not supposed to be fearful there, Peter. Oh. Right? Fearful and fearless at all the wrong times. Just screwing up when it seems to matter most. And you're just like, and Jesus just simply says, do you love me, Peter? Yeah. Strengthen the brothers then. Feed the sheep then. What is that? What is that? It transformed him. It, it changed him. That's the transformation we talk about as Christians when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the transformation we're talking. We're not talking about try harder, do better. Yes, pursue holiness. Why? Because God is holy. Yes, purify yourself. Why? Because he purifies himself. That he is pure. So yes, but what changes us is the fact that we are broken, busted, wrecked, couldn't get it right on our best day, people, and God loves us and gave himself for us. That's motivating. That preaches. So here's what we get from Peter's story. Jesus loved Peter. Who picked who? Jesus picked Peter. Peter didn't pick Jesus. Jesus picked Peter. Jesus loved Peter. Second thing we get from Peter's story is uh, Peter wasn't perfect. That's clear. He wrestled with his own brokenness. Third thing we get is Peter had an enemy that demanded to have him could make that demand because he knew he'd find stuff in the box. That enemy was ready right there to leverage all of his sin, all of his brokenness, all of his weaknesses, to leverage all of that against Peter for his own downfall. Wasn't doing it for his good. Wasn't doing it for God's glory. Was doing it to ruin him. To shake it out, to agitate him, leave all the debris in the box, and then to, as loud as he could, accuse him. 
in front of a God he knew would have to punish sin. I can't remember who shared this illustration, but it stuck with me over the years. Somebody painted this picture of the enemy with a double-barrel shotgun. In one barrel, he puts a shell, and on the side of the shell is written, engraved the words as he slides in, engraved the words, it's no big deal, everybody does it. And the second barrel has a shell in it, and on the side of it is engraved, look what you just did. And he lets you have both. The right first, no big deal, everybody does it, it's no big deal. And then the accusation next. Peter would later write this, and when you know his story and are familiar with his story, it, 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 it's a little more punchy. He wrote this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He would later write this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? Devour. Not munch on. Nibble on. Devour. And he's like, I imagine when he's writing this, is he remembering Jesus' word Satan demanded to have you? You're like, whoa. Whew, you've got an enemy, guys. He prowls around like a lion looking for someone to tear to pieces. To tear to pieces. So resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Look, I've been, he's, this is what he said, I've been there, man. I get it. You've got an enemy, you need to resist him. Okay? It's, it's, it, when, you, when you're familiar with the story, that, that letter punches. Fourth thing we get from Peter's story. Peter knew Jesus and he loved him. I think that's why he wept so bitterly. Because he loved Jesus. And he knew him. And we know from scripture that those who know, those who seek that kind of fellowship, there are those who are his. Those, those who love him and, and scripture says that know him, in a sense, prove to be his. And Peter, Peter loved him. I think he saw his sin. I think that's why he was weeping bitterly. He just, ah, just let him down and it bums me out. Because I love him. And I love our relationship. And I, I don't like it broken and estranged. Bums me out. And, and it, it isn't more clear. If you look. Are you still in John 21? Look at the first part of the book. This is right before their little breakfast. And then his conversation with Peter. Look at, look at how Jesus shows up on the scene. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Tom, uh, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and, the two, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what's going on. I'm going back to what I know. Jesus is gone. I don't understand what's going on. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they, uh, they answered him, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. 
the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, therefore said to him, it's the Lord. Now, I want you to get this. There is something awesome happening here. But you remember when Peter was called? Luke chapter 5? Just fishermen's out there with some of his partners in another boat. I think it was probably James and John. And they're just out fishing. And Jesus shows up. He does some teaching. And, and he's like, hey, did you guys catch Why don't you throw your net out? He goes, okay, carpenter. Uh, we've been up all night fishing so, and caught nothing. So. And they cast it out. And they could not haul in the number of fish. And then what does Jesus say? He says, look, come, follow me. Put your nets down. Follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of what? Men. So that whole metaphor of a fish, of so many fish being caught in the net that the nets are tearing, that's Acts 2. 3,000, day one. And the rhythm of the book of Acts is like this. And hundreds were added, and more were added daily. Hundreds were added daily, those who were being saved. They couldn't haul in the net. Deja vu right here at the end, too. So a guy, some strangers on the beach saying, hey, did you guys catch anything? No, all night out here, you know. Why don't you throw it on the right side of the... They do, and they can't call in the fish instantly. It's almost like the rooster crowing. Instantly, another memory comes back. And John's like, that's the Lord. And John's like, it is? And he goes all Forrest Gump and jumps off the boat. Like he says, he puts on his outer coat. He's like, Lieutenant Dan. And he jumps off the boat and <laughs> leaves the boat. And John's like there by himself hauling in the big load by himself. He's like, Peter, always Peter, right? Peter loved Jesus. He loved him. And he knew him. And then the great reinstatement of Peter at the end of 21. It's just beautiful. Beautiful. Here's what I want to end with. I think I've just got a few minutes. Let me, let me say this. In 1 John chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. It identifies two things that Jesus came to do. In, in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 5, it says this, that Jesus appeared to take away sins. And we know that John the Baptist said the same thing. When he saw Jesus walking by, he looked to his disciples and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus appeared, was to take away sins. Well, 1 John chapter 3 gives us another reason that Jesus appeared in verse 8. It says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. So how, how, how does he do this? I want you to think about this. By doing the one, he does the other. Okay, I'm not tracking. Okay, I want you to think about this. Jesus came to take away sin. And this is the gospel, so listen. Jesus came to take upon himself all of our sin because I told you earlier that God cannot, cannot forgive sin. He cannot pardon the wicked and not be wicked himself. Scripture says that. So he has to punish sin. So what does he do? He punishes it in Jesus. That's Romans chapter 3, where he's, he's both the justifier while remaining justified. That's what that verse is about in Romans 3. That he justifies us, and in so doing, he does it in a way that, that where he remains justified. How? Because he does punish sin. In Jesus, on the cross. So Jesus takes all of our sin. This isn't a metaphor, church. He takes your sin. 
and he goes to the cross. The Bible says that Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to satisfy wrath and restore favor. So what he did was he took our sin, satisfied the wrath of God in punishment on the cross, and restored to us favor with God. Seriously? So how does that destroy the works of the devil? What's the work of the devil? Adversary, the accuser, the brethren, who so confidently is shaking the box and agitating the box, confident that he's going to find some debris in the box. And Jesus is just patiently standing there. Hold on one second. It was here a minute ago. And I'm standing over here, Peter, I can imagine Peter or, or any of us standing over there going, seriously? I'm as surprised as Satan is that there's nothing in the box. And you go, come over, you have the right box. He, he just, he can't find it. And then there's an empty box. It all went through the screen. Destroying the works of the devil. He's got nothing, church. He is standing there doing what he does, bringing accusation, and he's got nothing in the box because Jesus took it all and went to the cross with it. Radical, undeniable grace, that will change you. That'll change you. That'll leave you different. That'll motivate you differently. In Peter's letter that I just referenced where he warned about an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion. The very next verse, verse 10 says this. I'll put this on the screen. And I want you to read this in light of his story. And after you have suffered a little while, he writes, likely reflecting back on his own life. The God of all grace. How much grace? All grace. Who has called you. Picked me. I didn't pick you. Pick to his eternal glory in Christ. So after you've suffered a little while, look at this. Will himself restore. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore. I like that himself. I wonder if you thought about the beach. And Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That wasn't ethereal for Peter. That's his story. That's his story. It's, 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 it's profound. That'll change you. That'll leave you wrecked for just ordinary living and ordinary striving. That'll leave you, wow, feed the sheep, yeah, whatever. Where? Tend my sheep, yeah, what, what do you need? I just can't, right? And then our pursuit of holiness and our pursuit of purity is in response to the gospel, not to gain it or earn it. It's like, yeah, uh, Whatever you need, just let me know. Here I am, send. Send me. 
That'll leave you different, church. That'll leave you different. What does the word gospel mean? Yeah. Good news. Good news. So in the past, what you heard, you know, what you've been practicing, you know, didn't sound like good news. Uh, It probably wasn't. And you're not hearing it right, or you're not listening, you're not telling it right, maybe. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And we get to talk about that. In this busted up, broken up world, we are the ones charged with talking about that. Well, it's, it's my privilege then, isn't it? That'll leave you wrecked, and that'll leave you new. I promise you. Let's pray. God, simply, this is to your glory and our great good. You have done marvelously. You did a good job. You really did a good job. I am for ever in your debt, and uh, instead of a payment, you just call it grace. And, uh, so for God, God, for those in here that are wrestling with these things and are in a season like Peter where they're weeping bitterly, and God, would you, would you be near? Would you restore? Would you demonstrate Radical, undeniable grace in tangible ways. For those who don't know you, maybe that are experiencing today with new ears to hear, new eyes to see, because we know that comes from the Holy Spirit. They're hearing the gospel. God, I pray that you would grant them the faith to respond. And the gospel would have its effect. And it would leave them changed. And God, would we just talk about Jesus a lot? He's the one who did it. I didn't do it. You did it. I'm a recipient by faith because of grace. You did it. It's your crown. It's your glory. And my grace, it's just grace to me. It's my joy. Thank you that for your own, that you have granted us the great opportunity to be eternally grateful for what you have done. In Jesus' great name, everybody said, amen. So as you leave, that, that radical, undeniable grace, that we would just reflect on that and leave in that. It should be dripping off of you for the rest of the afternoon. God bless you guys. Thank you for letting me in. It was great.